Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to that passage, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. It's going to take us a while, but we will get to that passage eventually, I promise. Uh, This morning, I want to try something a little bit different, if it's cool with you guys. So if you've been around our church for very long, you know that generally what we do during this time on Sunday mornings is that we teach from the Scriptures. So we open up to a passage of Scripture, maybe a few different passages, and we just do our best to unpack what that passage says, what it means, and then how it applies to our life. Um, And we are going to do that this morning, but this morning, instead of first teaching from the scriptures, what I'd like to do just for today is I want to teach our way to the scriptures and then teach from the scriptures. Is that okay with y'all? Can we do things a little bit differently this morning? I was genuinely hoping you would say yes, because I have nothing else planned. So that's, I think, what we're going to do this morning. We might never do it again. I just feel like that might be helpful, especially in regards to what we're going to be discussing this morning. I want to teach our way to the Bible. So go to Colossians 1. We'll eventually get there here in just a bit. Um, As we get there, sort of to kick things off, I want to kick things off with a question this morning. And here's the question I want to ask. Feel free to ponder this on your own. You don't have to answer out loud. I just want you to think on this question with me. Why did Jesus matter? Why did he matter? Now, as best as you can, I want you to try to not answer that question like a Christian would. And I do realize the irony in what I just said. I get where we are right now. I understand the context that we're in. But I want you to try to think about that question a little more objectively and logically than that. Why did Jesus, as a person who existed in history, matter? Because honestly, from a historical perspective, he probably shouldn't have mattered. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, Generally, if you want to make an impact on the world, uh, there are a handful of tried and true ways to make that happen, to become important, to become significant. So uh, one way to become important is to be born into a wealthy family, right? So today and in antiquity, if you were born into wealth and or fame or prominence, you've got a pretty good chance of becoming wealthy and prominent yourself. That's just how the world works. I mean, just take the Kardashians, for instance. Uh, Best I can tell, there's no particular reason that the Kardashians are famous except that they come from a wealthy and quasi-famous family. At least for me, it's not because they're interesting, right? It's just that that's the environment that they come from, and that's what makes them important, at least in the eyes of a lot of people. That's how the world works. If you come from money, you've got a decent shot at becoming important. Jesus, though, on the other hand, uh, was born to very poor parents who were displaced by an ill-timed census living in a borrowed room when he was born. So he doesn't exactly fit that descriptor at all. Uh, Another way to become significant is to start a family of your own, 
So you get married, have lots of kids that can carry on the family legacy, the family name, maybe the family business. That's another way to become prominent. But Jesus, on the other hand, never got married and never had a single child of his own to pass on anything to. Another way to matter would be to grow up in a big city, right, where you can leverage connections and opportunity to help rise to prominence. So if you want to become an actor, you go to New York or you go to L.A. If you, if you want to make it big in politics, you go to Washington, D.C. or somewhere like that. If you want to become a musician, you go to Nashville, right? If you want to be a star, you should live somewhere where stars are made. Jesus, on the other hand, grew up in a town called Nazareth, which is in the boonies, and a town of a population of a few hundred people. Doesn't exactly fit that descriptor either. It's such that upon meeting him, someone actually said, talking about Jesus, can anything good come from Nazareth? I've never heard of that place. Much less would anybody important come from there. Another way to matter would be to travel, right? So even if you come from a relatively obscure place, if you travel to enough places and you're a good enough networker, you can still make a name for yourself. You can become cultured, in other words. This is what I call the eat, pray, love approach to prominence. That's how it works, right? If you travel the world and you meet enough of the right people, maybe that's how you become important in the scheme of history. Jesus, however, never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born, and he gravitated towards relatively rural settings, not urban centers. Another way to matter in our world would be to live a lavish lifestyle, right? So build a mansion that people want to visit and photograph and host parties in. Think of the Vanderbilts that built Biltmore House in Asheville, right? Something like that. Just live a very lavish lifestyle and that's how you become significant. But Jesus, for the bulk of his life, had no home at all, much less a nice one, and often slept outside or stayed with family and friends for short periods of time throughout his life. Another way to matter would be to write a book, right? So release your groundbreaking ideas out into the world and just wait as the royalty checks roll in and the speaking opportunities roll in. Maybe that's how you become important. But Jesus, while he did have books written about him, never published so much as a single sentence of his own writing throughout his life. Another way to matter, just if we're completely honest, is to just be really, really, really good looking, right? In a shallow world like ours that tends to value people based on their appearance, if you've got a jawline like Ryan Reynolds or a physique like Michael, Michael B. Jordan, then you can become a big deal simply because people like to look at you, right? You make it into movies and TV shows and magazine covers and commercials, all of that. And yet we're told in Isaiah that there was nothing about Jesus's appearance at all that was exceptional. I don't know if Jesus had like a dad bod or what the situation was, but apparently, according to Isaiah, there was absolutely nothing exceptional about the way that Jesus looked. Another way to make a name for yourself in the world would be to occupy political office, right? Or at least run for political office, become the figurehead of a movement, so to speak. Jesus, however, repeatedly resisted anyone who wanted to prop him up as a political leader, saying that his kingdom was not that kind of kingdom and it shouldn't be thought of as such. So it wasn't that either. And we could go on with that list, right? But I think y'all are getting my point by now. At least on the surface, it doesn't seem like Jesus did any of the things that you're supposed to do if you want to matter, 
in the scheme of history. He didn't check any of the boxes that you're supposed to check. He should not have mattered from a logical, historical human perspective. And yet it's hard to argue that Jesus did not matter. In fact, I think it's hard to argue that he hasn't been the single most significant person to ever live in the history of the world to this day. Here's how famous author H.G. Wells put it. He says, I am an historian, I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Time Magazine put it this way back in the day when they named Jesus not just the man of the year, not just the man of the millennium, but the man of all millennia. They explained it this way. They said, it would require much exotic calculation to deny that the single most powerful figure, not merely in these two millenniums, but in all human history, has been Jesus of Nazareth. A serious argument can be made that no one else's life has proved remotely as powerful and as enduring as that of Jesus. So just to give you a few surface level reasons why people might be inclined to say things like that about Jesus. Today is March 19th, 2023 AD. AD stands for Anno Domini, not after death, as some people thought. I think I thought that until like five years ago. Anno Domini, which is Latin for the year of our Lord. In other words, Jesus himself. So human history currently is divided into two different eras. There was this one chunk of time before this guy named Jesus existed, and there was this other chunk of time after this guy named Jesus existed. That's how we view time in general. The dates are off by a few years based on a miscalculation, which is unfortunate. How would you like to be that guy that messed up the dating of human history, right? So they're off by a few years based on a miscalculation, but still, that is how we view time itself in our world. Additionally, the most widely celebrated international holiday is Christmas, the holiday commemorating Jesus' birth and bearing part of his title, Christ, which means Messiah. As we mentioned earlier, while Jesus never wrote a book of his own at all, more books have been written about him than any other person in the history of the world. Over 100,000 biographies of Jesus in the English language alone. There are more pieces of art, more paintings, more sculptures depicting Jesus than any other human being in history. More songs have been sung about Jesus than any other person in history. As one author put it, the life of Jesus is a comet with an exceedingly long tail. But to be honest with you, those few things that I just rattled off don't even really scratch the surface when it comes to understanding the impact of Jesus on our world today. Jesus and his movement have shaped society as you and I know it in America. For this section, I'm just going to give you some broad categories to consider. First, let's consider the very concept of human rights and equality. Let me know if you've heard these lines before. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And the line goes on. Those ideas in the Declaration of Independence are ground zero for our entire understanding of human rights, at least in America and probably for most of the West. 
most of us today take the reality of human rights for granted. We just assume that they're true. Of course all people are created equal. Of course that is how it works. That is, like the Declaration says, self-evident. But here's what you should know, if you weren't already aware. For the overwhelming majority of human history, equality has not been self-evident at all. One popular thinker who didn't believe in human equality was a guy named Aristotle. You may have heard of him. For, he, so, he once said, for that some should rule and others should be ruled is a thing not only necessary but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection and others for rule. In other words, to Aristotle and many others like him, it was actually self-evident to them that not everyone was created equal. And listen, that was the predominant way of thinking in most ancient civilizations, that is, until the movement of Jesus started taking hold. Part of the reason that people of low social status flocked to Jesus' movement in disproportionate numbers is because he went around preaching this radical, absolutely novel message at the time that those people mattered as much as anybody else did. Nicholas Wolsterstorff, which is a very hard name to say, I learned in the first service, philosopher and former professor at Yale, he put it this way, what happened to cause this moral subculture that says every human being has rights? Answer, the teaching of the Jewish scriptures clarified and made available to the world through Jesus. Simply put, the concept that all human beings have rights just by virtue of being human beings and the fact that all human beings are created equal is a uniquely and distinctively Christian idea. Now, I am not saying that if you don't believe in Jesus, you can't believe in human rights. That would be a very silly thing for me to say. But I am saying that if it weren't for the impact of Jesus and his movement, you wouldn't believe in human rights. That is what I'm saying. None of us would. I wouldn't either because that is where the idea itself came from. More specifically, I want you to consider Jesus' contributions to how we think about a couple different groups of people in our world. So the impact of Jesus, for instance, and how we think about children and their role in society. So in the ancient world that Jesus was born into, children were not primarily seen as cute, cuddly bundles of joy like they often are today. They were largely seen as liabilities, in fact. In a hand-to-mouth society, children were actually a burden such that it was really common for unwanted children or children who weren't male to be left out in the elements to die of exposure at the time. But something changed when Jesus and his movement started taking hold in the world. One gospel writer named Mark captures this moment where Jesus' disciples are trying to keep young children from coming up to Jesus. They're kind of saying, hey, get these kids away from Jesus. Don't you know how many Instagram followers he has? Like, he's really important. That's the general vibe going on in the scenario. It's a loose translation, but you get the idea. They're trying to stop the kids from coming to Jesus, and Jesus responds to his disciples by saying this, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Jesus bestowed unprecedented dignity on children of society in stark contrast to the society around him at the time. 
such that one scholar published a work about all of this, unpacking how the Jesus movement did this, titled, When Children Became People, The Birth of Childhood and Early Christianity. Up until the movement of Jesus, children were seen as someone's property, not as human beings. The Jesus movement changed all of that. Here's one that might surprise you if you read a lot of the headlines these days about Christianity. The Jesus movement bestowed a unique honor and dignity upon women. So if it was rough for children in the ancient world before Jesus, in many ways it was much worse for women. So by Roman law, a father was required to raise all healthy male children, but was only required to raise the firstborn female. All the other girls in the family were apparently disposable. The same book of Roman law said that men could physically beat their wives with a rod or a switch so long as its circumference was no greater than the man's thumb. But Jesus came along and treated women very differently than the world around him. Women were included in listing his family lineage, which was highly unusual for his time. Women were invited to be Jesus' disciples and to travel with him, participate in ministry with him, even deciding to provide financially for the ministry out of their own means. Jesus repeatedly held up women as examples of faith and devotion and spiritual maturity in a day and age where almost no one thought of women in those terms. Author Rebecca McLaughlin in her fantastic book that I recently read called Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, she said it this way, indeed, the way that Jesus treated women tore up the belief that women are innately inferior to men, a belief that was pervasive in the ancient world. We should not be surprised, therefore, that women have been flocking to Jesus ever since. Christianity also revolutionized the way that people thought about the poor in their society. So we have accounts of ancient leaders of civilizations who wanted to stamp out the Christian movement, but many of them were nervous to do so because Christians were the only people consistently and impactfully caring for the poor in their cities. One leader goes on record as being anxious that if they were to extinguish Christianity, there would be riots in the streets because the poor in each city would not be cared for well enough. Christians also pioneered the way that many societies cared for the sick. So St. Basil of Caesarea, who's a follower of Jesus in the fourth century, he founded what was essentially the first ever hospital based on his conviction that Christians should care for the sick as taught in the New Testament. To this day, many hospitals bear names and indicators of Christian denominations, Baptist Hospital, Presbyterian Hospital, St. Mary's, St. Joseph's Hospitals, because they were originally founded, funded, and run by followers of Jesus. Historically, followers of Jesus have also led the way in fields like science and logic and reason. Galileo, Isaac Newton, Blaise Pascal, George Washington Carver, or even people like Francis Collins today, all of these people attribute their pursuit of science and research to a Christian faith or to Christian ideals. I think it's easy for us to overlook that in a day and age where some followers of Jesus, for some strange reason, feel like they need to pit their faith against science and reason, but followers of Jesus have always been active on that front, even pioneers in those fields. Historian Rodney Stark explains it like this. He says, while the other world religions, meaning at the time, emphasized mystery and intuition, Christianity alone embraced reason and logic as the primary guide to religious truth. 
This helps explain why historically Christians have founded so many well-known institutions of education and higher learning that exist to this day. Places like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, who is killing it in the NCAA tournament right now. Have y'all noticed this? Has nothing to do with anything. I just thought of it. Princeton, who apparently is very good at basketball, Oxford, Cambridge, and not to state it too broadly, but virtually the entire Western system of education that we have today comes from followers of Jesus, believing in those sorts of things. Just to be clear, you, you don't start universities if you are opposed to education, reason, and science. That would be a very counterproductive thing for you to do. So to summarize, whether we realize it or not, understand it or not, Jesus and his movement are actually at the foundation of quite a few things that you and I take for granted in our society today. Human rights, care for the poor, healthcare, science, reason, logic, education, and we haven't even looked at, nor do we have time to look at, more conceptual values like freedom, progress, consent, justice, those ideas also find much of their origins in the Christian movement. Attempting to summarize the impact of Jesus across human history, Oxford grad Dwight Longnecker, which has to be the most British name I've ever heard in my life, Dwight Longnecker says this in summarizing all of it. He says, the development of science springs from a Christian theology that the natural world is real and that it is ordered and structured and can therefore be studied and analyzed. The idea that one can take initiative and change one's life and change the world springs from the empowerment that comes from the doctrine of free will. Human rights would never have been thought of without the belief in the innate dignity of each human being created in God's image and likeness. Justice is, is possible, I'm sorry, because of the belief in objective law, which would be impossible without a divine lawgiver. And even the atheistic rebellions of Voltaire, Nietzsche, and Marx would, be, would have been impossible without a higher belief in the values of truth and personal integrity. And he means that come from the movement of Jesus. Do you see what he's saying? The, the life of Jesus is a comet with an exceedingly long tail. Now, real quickly here before we continue, please hear me on something. In no way am I trying to make the point this morning that only positive things have ever been contributed to the world in the name of Christianity. That's not what I'm trying to say. I am well aware, just like most of you are, that quite a few horrendous and evil things have been done by people who claim to represent Jesus, the Crusades, the colonial slave trade, the scandal of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church that we're dealing with to this day, just to mention a few, right? And if you've been around our church for very long at all, you know that we have no problem as a group of people calling those things out and exposing them for what they are, mourning them, grieving them, fighting against them, all of those things. We say that stuff often. So I certainly today am not trying to ignore any of that or sweep any of that under the rug at all. But here's the case I am making. Here's what I am trying to say. Sometimes I've noticed that people like to talk about Christianity as if it has only ever contributed negative things into the world. That's becoming very popular to do, especially in today's age, especially in today's day and age. 
it's becoming very popular to talk about Christianity like it's only ever the problem, like it only ever makes things worse, and that's why we should just leave it behind. And if you're here today and that's your perspective, listen, I get it. I understand it. That is an easy view to take if all you do is read the headlines. But with respect, you might want to do a little more reading and listening before you land on that conclusion. You might want to read and listen a little more widely than you are now, because it is not even a little bit true that Christianity has only ever contributed negative things into the world. In fact, if you do the research, it's quite the opposite. Because whether we realize it or not, the impact of Jesus on our world today is vast which is what leads Yale historians to conclude things like this. Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up every and pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? I think that's a question worth wrestling with wherever you are in the journey of faith. The world as you and I know it would look profoundly different if it were not for the impact of Jesus and his movement. Profoundly different. And I would argue it would very much be a net negative. So here's why I take you on that whole journey this morning. To me, all of that raises a very important question, a question that I would argue every person in this room, follower of Jesus or not, has to wrestle with whether they want to wrestle with it or not. And it's the question, how? How? How did this happen? How did Jesus become undeniably the single most impactful person in the history of the world despite the fact that he did pretty much none of the things you're supposed to do if you want to make an impact. If you are thinking objectively about that question, I think it has to eat at you at least a little bit. Jesus is, as our series title indicates, a complete anomaly. He fits no categories that we have in human history and yet has had an unparalleled impact on history as we know it. So how is that possible for a person to do? That's the question. I'll give you my answer to the question, which I have just stolen directly from the Apostle Paul. This is Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Let's read the whole thing one more time, and then I'll go back and point a few things out for us from it. Starting in verse 15. The Son, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through, the, through his blood shed on the cross. The answer 
for how Jesus could have an impact unlike any other person is because he is a person unlike any other person. In fact, because he's not just a person at all. He is, according to Colossians 1, the image of the invisible God. Jesus was not just made in the image of God like all of us are. He is the image of God. In Paul's words, all things were created in him and through him and for him. And notice, Paul says that includes things that are, quote, visible and things that are invisible. So we as human beings were created by him. Nature itself, the world itself was created by him. Those things are visible. But invisible things were also created by him. Things I would argue like justice, equality, human rights, logic, science, education, progress, all of those things and more. So listen, could it be possible that the reason so many people adhere to those ideas, even when they don't believe in Jesus, is because those things are imprinted on our very nature as his creation? The reason, in other words, that things like equality are self-evident to so many people is because we were made in the image of God whose idea equality was. Whose idea it was to bestow dignity on every single human being as an image bearer of God. And then there's that line at the end of verse 18 where Paul says, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So the word Paul uses there in the Greek is the word protuo. It means preeminence or to hold the first place, but it really means more than just first in sequence or first in the order of a list of things. It actually means first in importance. It means first in significance, first in impact, or if you prefer, in the words of H.G. Wells from earlier, the most dominant figure in all of history. You see, the reason that Jesus has the impact that he has had is because of who he is. Because God intended it to be that way from the very beginning. Jesus has the impact he has because he is precisely who he claimed to be over and over again. He is God in the flesh, sent to earth to change the very course of human history. And as it turns out, he did exactly that. And to be honest, it requires quite a bit of cognitive dissonance to insist that he hasn't done that. Starting in the first century and continuing on to today, over 2,000 years later, Western society as we know it would not look remotely like it does without the movement of Jesus. And nearly all historians, at least the honest ones, will admit that, even some of them that don't want to admit it. So then the question becomes, what are we supposed to do with all of that? Why go on that very long journey into understanding the impact of Jesus, especially when at least theoretically most of the people in this room already believe that Jesus is who he says he was. Here's why I do it. Here's why I take us on that entire journey this morning. I want everything that we just talked about to help guard us against two common mistakes that I often see people make in how they think about their faith in Jesus. Two tendencies that I've seen a lot of people have that I think all of this today can help us unlearn over time. And I want to spend a few minutes on each of them before we're done. So first thing I think all of this shows us, all of this tells us, is that we don't have to privatize our faith. 
We don't have to privatize our faith. Now, for clarity here, just so you understand what I'm saying and what I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that our faith shouldn't be personal. Our, our faith is and should be deeply personal. What I'm saying is that it shouldn't be only personal. It shouldn't be private, in other words. I think often you and I as followers of Jesus feel at least some amount of pressure to keep our belief in Jesus to ourselves. Now, sometimes that pressure is internal. We don't want to come across a certain way to other people, and so we just keep quiet. Sometimes I think the pressure is external. So in more and more ways, I think it gets communicated that it's fine for Christians to exercise their faith in our society just so long as that is limited to what we do in private and maybe for an hour or two on Sunday mornings. As long as it stays there and it doesn't impact any other part of their life, it's totally okay. And what gets communicated is that Christians shouldn't bring their faith into how they think about things like work or their career, how they think about money or how they think about politics or how they think about sexuality, because to do any of that could be off-putting, could be uncomfortable to other people. And so Christians should just keep it to themselves. They should privatize their faith. Now, there are a few problems with that mentality that I can think of. One is that it's not very healthy in general to tell anyone to sequester part of who they are from the rest of who they are. So, uh, for example, think if, if I had a friend who was a person of color and I said to them, hey, it's fine for you to be a person of color, just do your best to not let that impact the way you think about the world around you or any public facing part of your life, just be a person of color in private. Do you hear how ridiculous that sounds? Okay. It's just as ridiculous to say to followers of Jesus. So that's the first problem with it. Second problem with it is that followers of Jesus actually can't keep their faith to themselves. According to the scriptures, that way of thinking about faith is actually impossible. So in the book of James chapter 2, which you can go read on your own time, uh, James makes a point of saying that faith without works, which is just his way to say public, visible outworkings of your faith. He says that faith without works is actually dead, as in it's a lie. It's not real faith at all. He's saying there's actually no way to have faith in Jesus that does not work itself out in public, visible sorts of ways. But third, perhaps most related to what we're talking about this morning, would be this. Here's what I would put to you about the idea of Christians privatizing their faith. Even if you are not a Christian, I would argue you actually don't want Christians to keep their faith to themselves. You, you may think you do, but you actually don't. If followers of Jesus had kept their faith to themselves, human rights as we know it today would not exist. If followers of Jesus had kept their faith to themselves, our society would not be anywhere close to where it is in regards to our treatment of women and children, the poor, the sick, not to mention minorities. I get that we have a long way to go in all of those things, but I'm saying we wouldn't even be where we are today. Just to make it abundantly obvious, I am exceedingly glad that Martin Luther King Jr. did not choose to keep his faith to himself. I'm so glad he did not take that approach to his understanding of Jesus. So followers of Jesus in the room, I'm just trying to tell you, you do not have to privatize your faith. You are better off, your neighbors are better off, the world in general is better off when you don't keep it to yourself. Now, 
please do make an effort as a follower of Jesus to relate to those that don't share your faith with gentleness and respect, and please do not be a jerk about it. First Peter literally says that. Not the jerk part, but the other part, right? It literally says, interact with people that don't share your faith with gentleness and respect. So please do mind that idea, but you do not have to keep it private. Faith in general is actually something that cannot be kept private and shouldn't have to be. The second thing that I think all of this helps us realize, and then we'll be done, is that we don't have to relativize our faith. We don't have to relativize our faith. So this tendency is obviously similar to the first one, but I think also a little bit different. Some of us don't privatize our faith in Jesus as much as we sort of relativize it. So relativism, if you're unfamiliar with the term, is just the belief that things like truth and morality exist relative to culture, and therefore they are not absolute. So in layman's terms, it's the belief that while some things are true for me, that doesn't mean and shouldn't mean that they are true in general for other people. I think some of us have a tendency to relativize our faith. We think to ourselves, well, I believe that certain things are right and wrong. I believe that God exists and that God created the world, but that's my truth. Other people might have their own truth, and that's just as good for them. That's just as valid. Now, again, I want to reemphasize gentleness and understanding are values that we are called to have towards people that don't share our faith. But hear me out. Being tolerant and understanding of other worldviews is not the same thing as affirming other worldviews. Those are actually different ideas. I get that our society right now is trying to tell us those are the same thing. Those are not the same. It's not the same thing as affirming other worldviews. So listen, as followers of Jesus, just to be abundantly blunt about it, we believe that the one true God of the universe sent his one and only son to die on a cross and come back from the grave so that he might be the way, the truth, and the life. Not a single one of those things are relative claims. That's not just one true way to view the world among many ways to view the world. It is the one true way to view the world. As Paul says in Romans chapter one, verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Now, I realize that if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, everything that I just said probably comes across as a bit arrogant to you. And I get that. I think we've all been discipled really, really well by our society to view claims like that as arrogant. But I would submit to you that it is not arrogant simply to state that something is true. I'll try to illustrate it to you. Uh, imagine that I come up to you later today and I say to you, Nashville is the capital of Tennessee. You would probably not respond to me by going, wow, how arrogant of you to state what the capital of Tennessee is. You, you wouldn't respond that way. That's not how you would respond at all because objectively, Nashville is the capital of Tennessee. Arrogance and humility actually have very little to do with that. Now, I could go up to you and say, on the other hand, uh, Nashville is the capital of Tennessee. I am awesome because I know that and everybody who doesn't know that is a certifiable idiot. I could say it that way and that would be an arrogant way to state a true statement, but that doesn't make the true statement arrogant. Are you following me? 
some things are true. <laughs> some things are verifiably true. And just stating that something is true is not inherently arrogant to do. So G.K. Chesterton puts this really well, I think. It's one of my favorite quotes from him. We've used it before here on Sundays. He says, what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself and undoubting about the truth, but this has been exactly reversed. We are on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. G.K. Chesterton throwing some shade with that quote, right? But do you hear what he's saying? You hear the point that he's making when he says that? He's saying, listen, some things are objectively true. Nashville is the capital of Tennessee. Two times two is four. And Jesus is the only way to God. And I think the reason that some of us so instinctively shy away from talking about Jesus with our friends and coworkers and neighbors and classmates, the reason we so instinctively neglect to do that is because we have relativized the truth claims of Jesus in our minds. We have decided that, yeah, this whole Jesus thing is true for me, but that doesn't mean it should be true for anybody else. Who am I to say that this should be true for somebody else? But listen, the claim that the scriptures make over and over and over and over again is that it is true. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is true. It is true that Jesus is the only way to God. All of that is true, full stop. Not true for you, that is true for everyone. Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. In everything he has the supremacy and through him God is reconciling all things to himself, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And my prayer this morning, more than anything, is that by understanding all of that, some of us would have strength put back in our bones as followers of Jesus. That we would have confidence deep within our spirit that as a follower of Jesus, what I have found is not just one truth among many. What I have found is the truth, the way, the life. Not one valid way of life among many, but the one true way to live. Not one true story that makes sense for me, but the one true story of the world. And the cross and the empty grave of Jesus aren't just true enough for you. They're true enough for anyone who chooses to believe in them. So what we do every single week after the teaching as a time of response is that we go to the tables throughout the room and we take communion. What we're celebrating there when we do that are the words of Colossians chapter one, in essence, that through Jesus, God is reconciling all things to himself. And the way he is doing that is by making peace by his blood shed on the cross. So we go to the tables and we remember that through all of that, we have been brought into understanding the one true story about the world. We understand the truth that God has offered us in the gospel. And if you're here this morning and, and you don't know what you think about any of that, 
that's fine. You're welcome to be here. I pray this morning has at least given you some stuff to think about. Even if you don't, you don't agree with any of it, you're welcome to come tell me you don't agree with any of it. I'd love to have a conversation with you anyway. But what I'm here to tell you this morning is that this is not just one true way to live. It is the only one true way to live. And so if there's anything we can do, any questions we can help answer to help you understand that reality, man, that is literally what we're here to do as the people of Jesus. And so if we can help you in any way, answers any questions in any way, we would absolutely love to do that. But those of us that know and follow Jesus, what we're going to do as a time of response is we're going to go to the tables, we're going to sing and celebrate the reality of the one true story of the world made possible through the cross of Jesus. Let me pray for us.